So there are those, those Sundays when after I've preached on a particular text of Scripture that someone will come up to me out in the lobby and say, Pastor Gary, that is my favorite passage in the entire Bible. And I'll say, well, that's great. That's great. <clears throat> this morning, I doubt that there is anyone who has ever said that about 1 Peter chapter 3, 1 through 7. Pastor Gary, that's my favorite passage. Um, in fact, for some, it may be one of their least favorite passages, and I hope to change that this morning as we work through this. We are moving our way through 1 Peter, and this morning we come to a passage that has caused confusion as well as tension, misunderstanding, and um, I trust that the Holy Spirit will be our teacher today as we open His Word. Please stand as you're able for the reading to honor the reading of God's Word. Likewise, wives, be subject... Be subject to your own husbands, (laughs) so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Please be seated. How many of you enjoy working on jigsaw puzzles? Show of hands. Quite a few, yeah. Um, You like the big, like, thousand-piece ones that just sort of take over your entire dining room table for several weeks, and you go back to it, and you sort of keep adding pieces. Um, You know, you pick up one random piece of a puzzle, and you look at it, and you say, you know, I have no idea where in the world this fits into this puzzle. And so you look at the picture on the box, you study the picture, and then you go back to the pieces. And then as you're putting it all together, you usually want to get the edges in place. You find the corners, and you kind of work your way in, sort of work from the outside in, And then certain parts of the puzzle begin to come together. And then you realize, take this, oh, now I see where this piece fits. In studying the Bible, you always need to have the bigger picture in mind. You need to be able to look at the box and see what it's supposed to look like so that when you come across a particular piece of the puzzle that you don't really understand how in the world it fits, you say, oh, now I see where this fits into the bigger picture picture. The passage that we're looking at this morning is one of those pieces of the puzzle that for many people over the years has caused confusion, tension. You pick it up and you look at it because of its subject matter. It really doesn't, you just don't know what to do with it, especially in a culture such as ours that really doesn't have an understanding 
uh, of how the parts of the Bible all fit together. And so you need to see it in its larger context. And so, for example, in this case, in 1 Peter 3, you need to go back to some key verses back in chapter 2, where Peter talks about our new identity in Christ. That's the name of this series, right? The born identity, the born again identity of believers. And so back in chapter 2, he talks about our new identity where he says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, now you have. And so he says, that's who you are in Christ. That's your new identity. Then in verse 12, he says that your new identity is to manifest itself in new conduct. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles, among unbelievers. Keep your conduct honorable. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So you've got new identity leading to new conduct, conduct that is honorable, conduct that honors God. Then beginning in the very next verse, chapter 2, verse 13, and then continuing on through the section that we're looking at this morning and even into verse 8 of chapter 3, Peter says, seems to me, he's saying that there are four major arenas of social interaction where believers need to especially give attention to their conduct. One is governing authorities, societal interaction with those who are over us in, in societal structures, human institutions. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. And then he says the second arena is the workplace. Be subject to your masters with all Be subject to your supervisors. Be subject to your boss. Be subject to your employer. Then the third is the section that we're looking at this morning, chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, the home. Practice submission, practice being subject to one another in the home. And then lastly will be the church, where I think in chapter 3, verse 8, he seems to be broadening it out where he says, finally, all of you, married, unmarried, single, whatever, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. And so the verses that we're looking at for this morning deal with that third area, the home, specifically marriage. And this, by the way, of the four, this is the smallest and most intimate of the four, the family unit, and specifically marriage is the most intimate, the relationship and interaction between a husband and a wife. Now, the elephant in the room with all of this, that one concept, that one idea that just really trips us up and that occupies center stage, always causing the most confusion and most tension is this whole discussion of being subject to another person or submitting to another person. So let's try and tackle that first. <clears throat> See if we can't get a clear biblical understanding of submission. And I think it'll help us have a much clearer an accurate understanding and appreciation for what he says here about marriage. 
To begin with, you need to realize that authority and submission are rooted in the nature of God himself. I mean, the Bible tells us very clearly that there is only one God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. But the Bible also explicitly tells us that God exists in three distinct persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. For example, we saw this right out of the gate back in chapter 1 in Peter's introduction where he says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ, Father, Spirit, Son, Jesus. And so it's the mystery of one God existing in three persons, each of the three, and this is where you got to think clear, each of the three is equally God, none is superior or inferior to the other two, yet even in the Godhead there is authority and submission and a differentiation of roles. The Son submits to the Father. It says that he came to accomplish, to do the Father's will. Not my will, Lord, but thine be done. He came to glorify the Father. That, he, his greatest pleasure came in glorifying the Father. John 17, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world exists. Now, as we're going through this, try to keep thinking in your mind about marriage, about how all of this transfers to marriage. I glorified you, now will you glorify me? What about the Holy Spirit? The the Holy Spirit submits to both the Father and the Son. Only doing what the Father and the Son have sent him to do. John 14, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he, the person of the Spirit, he will teach you all things. He will bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And so the Holy Spirit's going to come and take what Jesus did and deliver it again. And that's what he does here on Sunday mornings. John 15, when the, Holy, when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father. And so he says the Father's going to send this, the Helper. I'm going to send the Helper, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father. He will bear witness about me. He won't bear witness about himself. He'll bear witness about me. And then the same in John 16. And so the Holy Spirit was sent by the Father and the Son to bear witness, to teach, to bring to remembrance, to reveal, to glorify the Son and the Father. He doesn't do any of those things on his own authority. Rather, the Holy Spirit is always in deference to the Son and in submission to the Father. Now, I give you all of that because it's critical for you to understand authority and submission are found in the essence of who God is. And that's where you have to begin. Don't jump into that one piece of the puzzle in 1 Peter 3 or Ephesians 5 and try to figure out what in the world it means without the bigger picture about submission. And so as a result, brothers and sisters, submission and authority are an essential part of our imago Dei, that we are made in his image. And so when you read in the scriptures where God calls for authority and submission to be put into practice by his people with human institutions, in the workplace, in the family structure, 
and in the church, we recognize that it simply flows from the nature of who God is. And anything that comes from God is good. Anything that comes from God is not to be feared. Rather, it's to be treasured. And so there's something in here that we need to treasure as to what God is teaching us about marriage. Now, part of our problem is that we live in a society and in a world that doesn't understand spiritual things. The unbelieving world does not understand these things, and so this whole notion of submission gets twisted and distorted and misunderstood and misapplied by a world that does not accept the things of God. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 2, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. The natural person doesn't accept what's in here, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And so we live in a culture and in a world and society that does not and cannot appreciate. How in the world could this be something beautiful? But for the Christian, authority and submission are to be valued and esteemed as being of great, great value. Now let's be clear. And again, I'm giving you a lot here before you even get to your first point. And there's no place to write these notes. And so I'm sorry about that, but... But this is, this is foundation. This is what I'm giving you here at the, the first 10 minutes is, is it undergirds and it overarches everything else that we have to say, okay? Be clear. Submission does not imply any moral, intellectual, or spiritual inferiority in any of the arenas of life that we are talking about. I mean, this should be obvious to you. Let me ask you the question. Are you morally intellectually or spiritually inferior to those who are over us in government? The answer is no. Just watch the nightly news. <laughs> there are those who labor in the workforce, who, who, who have a lot more going on upstairs, who possess higher morals, who love the Lord more than some of their supervisors and bosses and employers. The members of a church are not somehow spiritually inferior to the elders. And the wife is not morally, intellectually, or spiritually less than her husband. And so authority and submission have nothing to do with a level of competence, with superiority, inferiority. Submission and authority have to do with differing roles and responsibilities given to us by God. For our good and for His glory. Now, we're almost ready to get to your first point. Peter's just talked about the first two arenas of social interaction where Christians are to be in submission. Human institutions, be subject to every human institution, and the workplace, be subject to your masters with all respect. Not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. He's going to apply that same principle to governing authorities. He's going to apply that same principle to children obeying their parents. With all respect. And then here in chapter 3, he just keeps going with the same idea. And he starts out in chapter 3, verse 1, likewise. In other words, let me apply the same principles to marriage that I've given you in these other areas of life. Verse 1, likewise, wives. Verse 7, likewise, husbands. 
Now, let me give you five what's it all about statements for those who are married and who love Jesus, okay? That's the combination. You're married and you love Jesus. How do those two fit together? Number one, Peter's telling us that it is about, it's about the hidden character of the heart for the person who's married and is a believer. He's writing to Christians, right? He's writing to believers. People who now have a whole new outlook on life because of their new faith in Christ. You go back to chapter 1, verse 3. He has caused us to be born again. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. So this is, this is new stuff. These are people who have been made new. You didn't used to love Jesus. Now you love him. You didn't used to believe in Jesus. Now you believe in him. You used to be spiritually dead. Now you're spiritually alive. You used to be living in the darkness. Now you're living in the light. You get the same thing in 2 Corinthians 5. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old's passed away. Behold, the new has come. In other words, you're not who you used to be. God's given you a new heart. Therefore, those of you who are married, you need to think about your marriage using a different paradigm. You need to look at your role as the wife or your role as the husband through a different lens. Peter uses the phrase, the hidden person of the heart. In other words, he is saying, understand who you are on the inside as someone who has been made new. You didn't used to believe in Jesus. You didn't used to love Jesus. You used to be spiritually dead. Now you're spiritually alive. You used to follow the course of this world. In fact, Peter said, actually, Paul says this in Ephesians 2, you used to unknowingly follow the devil, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is at work in the sons of disobedience. Now you follow Jesus. Whole different realm. So you've got to start thinking about everything through, through seeing, the, seeing everything through a different lens. Analyzing marriage, analyzing Work, analyzing your attitude towards governing structures through, through a different paradigm. This is not the way you used to think. This is not the way the world thinks. So understand, when Peter addresses wives and husbands, he is not giving marital counsel. Now, what he says here will go a long way in making for the best marriage. I'm convinced of that. But that's not his primary motivation. He isn't taking off his apostle hat and putting on his marriage counselor hat in chapter 3. It just doesn't fit. No, his motivation is for those who happen to be married and who love Jesus to want to emulate Christ and honor Christ the Lord in every arena of their life and especially for those who are married in their marriage. It's about the hidden person of the heart. Number two, it's about conduct that speaks louder than words. Again, we're going to pull about three points out of this first verse. Wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word, 
by the conduct of their wives. Let's break it down a little bit. He says, wives, be subject to your own husbands. Not to someone else's husband. Not to men in general, but to your own husband. Now, there have been plenty of men who have claimed this verse and the parallel verses in Ephesians as ammunition for building a case for male dominance and keeping their wives, quote, in their proper place. Um, I will tell you that unfortunately for many years, for most of his life, my dad was one of those men. I remember him actually counseling me when I was in college, make sure you marry someone who knows her place. And uh, he did not have a good marriage. David Helm writes, Christian women have too often been subjected to, to degrading explanations and abusive applications from this very text. Now, my... It might possibly bother some of you that Peter doesn't seem to give any qualifiers. Uh, he, he doesn't provide any exceptions to the rule. Even though we know from this book that there have to be exceptions to this rule. Because of other commandments laid down in God's word that have to be obeyed. David Helm elaborates on this. It does not mean that if your husband asks you to abandon your faith in Christ that you should do so. It does not mean that if your husband asks you to sin that you should do so. It does not mean that you must always agree with him and never present a differing view. You should. It does not mean that if he is unfaithful to you that you are left without biblical recourse. It does not mean that if he abuses you physically or abandons you through incessant verbal humiliation that you must remain quietly in the home and accept the daily cruelty of that relationship at all costs because it doesn't. You see, the overarching, undergirding principle that Peter is applying here to marriage is what Paul states in Ephesians 5, verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's what Paul's applying to marriage out of reverence for Christ because of who Christ is. And because of the example that he gave us to follow when he took upon himself a most unusual role for the eternal Son of God to take upon himself, a servant. Paul writes to the Philippians, again, apply it to your marriage, those of you who are married, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. This is your new identity. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, cling to, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And Paul says, that's the mind that you should have. Have the mind of submission. Have the mind of serving rather than being served. Have the mind that puts the interests of your wife before your own or the interests of your husband before your own. You see, I think that you could safely say that in humbling himself and taking the form of a servant, then becoming obedient to the point of death, 
Our Lord's actions spoke louder than all of his words combined. I mean, thank God for all the words that Jesus spoke. But friends, it is what he did that echoes across the ages. I mean, it's what, it's what he did that we sing about. We don't usually sing about what he taught. We sing about what he did and who he is. It's what he did that captures us. It's what he did that makes us weep. It's what he did that just grabs a hold of you by the throat. And so that's where the father demonstrated his love. That is where the son demonstrated his love and his submission to the father. His actions spoke louder than words. The world had never witnessed anything like that before. The world had never seen anything like that before. And it's never seen anything since. Except for when it catches a glimpse of what that looks like when Christians are doing the very same thing. Not grasping, not holding tightly to their rights, not controlling, not demanding respect, not striving to hold on to what is mine, but in humility, taking the form of a servant. That's the essence of what he's calling wives and husbands to do here. And the principle would seem to be that there's tremendous power and influence on the lives of others when you do this. When you conduct yourself in submission to others as servants, wherever God has placed you, in society at large, with human institutions, in the workplace, in your marriage, in your home, and in the church, that your conduct is more powerful than your words. It doesn't eliminate the need for words, but your words are worthless without the conduct. To these Christians, Christian wives, Peter is saying that they may be one, unbelieving husbands, that unbelieving husbands may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives. And so what Peter's Tackling with specifics concerning marriage is what Jesus taught in general in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus said, you are the light of the world. Let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. If I can paraphrase that for Peter, Peter might say, you Christian wives are the light in your home. Let your light shine before your unbelieving husbands and before your children that they may see your good deeds, your submission to Christ, your godly conduct, and glorify your Father in heaven. Specifics, specific application of a general overarching principle. Which leads to point number three, just to fill it out a little bit more. It is about the potential conversion of family members who don't know Jesus. That even if some do not obey the word, which means if even if some of them do not believe, they may be one. And so the Christian wife who continues to trust God and live before her husband and in her marriage according to what God says, she may be the instrument God uses to win him to Christ. There's no guarantee to that, but Peter's saying that may be the way it works. 
And by the way, the same is true for Christian husbands living with unbelieving wives. The same is true for Christian kids living with unbelieving parents. Let me give you an example of this. Some of you may be familiar with St. Augustine, Augustine, depending on how you want to pronounce it, early church father who in 397 A.D. essentially wrote his autobiography called The Confessions of St. Augustine. It's good reading. Um, If you want to see the mind and the heart of, of a man as he analyzed his life, as he analyzed the pieces that led to his conversion, and then his, his faith in God going forward from there. In his confessions, Augustine pays tribute in several places to his mother, Monica. She was a godly woman who lived in what is present-day Algeria. She loved the Lord, and she prayed faithfully and fervently and persistently for her children and for her unbelieving husband, Patricius. In one section... Augustine writes about his mother's marriage and the influence that her life and her conduct had in ultimately bringing Patricius to faith just shortly before his death. He writes, She served her husband as her master and did all she could to win him for you, speaking to him of you by her conduct by which you made her beautiful. You think maybe he had 1 Peter 3 in mind here when he wrote this? Finally, when her husband was at the end of his earthly span, she gained him for you. And so Monica personally experienced what Peter says might happen here. Praise God. And so one of the results of a Christian living the way God calls you to live in the home with your family, and it can be with your, with your grown sons and daughters. They're out of the home, but you're still living with them in terms of your conduct, sending a message to them. It just might be what God uses to influence their minds and their hearts, leading to their conversion. Let me give you a, an illustration of potentially the reverse of Augustine and Monica. I have wondered over the years that perhaps my dad was a case of the opposite of Monica's story. My dad always claimed that his mother was very religious out in public, but in the home was a very different woman. I don't have tons of memories of my grandmother. She moved to Montana to live with my aunt, my dad's sister, when I was still in grade school. I remember she was a very proper woman. Not terribly warm, not the kind that would wrap you up in her arms and love on you or make you chocolate chip cookies. Um, I always felt like I needed to behave when I went over to her house, which was right next to our house. And as for her faith, I have no memories at all, either way, which probably actually says a lot. Apparently, my dad didn't see the marks of a godly woman in his mom. In fact, he despised her. I never heard him say anything good about her. Never. And as a result, along with, I'm sure, a lot of other factors, my dad ended up with what seemed to be some pretty distorted views about marriage, about the role of the husband, about the role of the wife. 
And my mom was on the sad side of all that. But also some distorted views about Christianity and what it means to be a Christian. And as a result, I have no reason to believe that he ever came to know Christ. But friends, I do have to wonder how he might have been a different man had his mother had a more positive, maybe a more godly influence on his life because of what Scripture teaches us. I'd love to imagine what he, what might, have, what he might have turned into had there been different influences coming into his heart. Now, in contrast, Jenny, my wife, will tell you that it was her mom's faithfulness to the Lord, despite a difficult marriage, to an unbelieving alcoholic husband that made such an impression upon her as a young girl. I mean, when we started dating and, 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 and then into our you know, engagement years and marriage, years of marriage, you would always find her mom be sitting in her favorite chair with her morning cup of coffee and her Bible in her lap, meeting with the Lord, praying for her family every day. And as Jenny watched her parents, the contrast between the ungodly behavior of her, of her dad, who didn't know the Lord, to the faithful, loving behavior of her mom, became a decisive factor in her decision to follow Jesus. She remembers thinking to herself, I want to be like her and not like him. What you do in living up, in, in following the Lord's instructions and admonitions about the home may just be used by God to bring family members to Christ. Number four, it's about consideration being shown by both husband and wife. Consideration being shown. Several things I just want to give you here for both wives and husbands for their consideration. Wives, you should consider the role and responsibility of your husband before God. The phrase, be subject to your husbands, implies that he is to provide leadership and care and protection. It implies that he is to shepherd the family. And that is a huge responsibility. Frankly, it's more than he can handle. He can't do it on his own. He's going to need God's help. He's going to need your encouragement. And if you have any doubts as to what kind of leadership and shepherding the husband is to give, just read Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's his responsibility. Secondly, consider the marks of imperishable beauty. Don't let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the pulling out of, putting on of gold jewelry, the, the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart, the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Now, contrary to some legalistic interpretations of these verses, Peter is not prohibiting wives from styling their hair, wearing makeup, jewelry, nice clothes. We know that the bride in the Song of Solomon was beautifully adorned, Rather, what he's saying is that external adornment should not be the preoccupation or the main concern for the Christian wife. Now, on the flip side, I think it's safe to say it's possible for a wife's appearance, and a husband, by the way, to be so unkempt, so unadorned, and neglected as to discourage 
In this case, the husband coming across as indifferent to taking care of himself or the wife taking care of herself, which can be just as spiritually detrimental as giving too much attention. Does that make sense? But he's saying external beauty will perish. His primary concern, primary emphasis is on the internal beauty that is imperishable. My son-in-law sent me a text that he was sent. I've got to read it for you here. In terms of husbands' roles, how to make a marriage work, someone sent this to him. How would, how would you make a marriage work was asked of little, little, of little boys and girls. And this little boy said, tell your wife she looks pretty, even if she looks like a dump truck. <laughs> so, Peter didn't put that in here. He probably should have. Uh, consider the examples of other godly wives. Consider the examples of other godly wives. He uses Sarah as an example. Sarah's a great example. Sarah was not weak. She was a woman of strong character. One commentator points out, Sarah got into her husband's face a time or two, and he needed it a time or three. And so the lesson that I, I, I pull out of the Sarah Abraham narrative, find examples to follow. Find women who love the Lord, husbands, find men who love the Lord, who deal with the struggles of life. Find wives who are real. Find wives that you can relate with who are trusting God through the thick of marriage and through the, through the highs and the lows. And then the fourth consideration for wives, consider the promises of God that will sustain you. <clears throat> it says, you are, <clears throat> excuse me, you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. John MacArthur explains what the fear would have been there. First century, husbands had legal authority over their wives. Society regarded women as mere servants who were to stay at home and obey their husbands. If a woman decided to obey the gospel, that decision to change religions on her own could result in severe abuse from her unsaved husband. When such conversion did occur, a wife needed to know how to respond to her husband so that she might win him to the gospel, even though they might nevertheless have serious fears as to where such submission could lead. And so Paul is telling wives, in this case with unbelieving husbands, your marriage may be hard, your marriage is about trusting God, especially when it's hard, especially when marriage isn't easy. Don't give in to fear. Husbands, some considerations for husbands, because notice he says, likewise, husbands. And by the way, some of you might think that Peter's instructions here are way out of balance. You notice when we read the scripture, there was that much for the wives and that much for the husbands. <clears throat> in fact, six verses for the wife, one verse for the husband. 133 words in the ESV for wives, 38 words for husbands. I don't think Peter was into counting words. He just simply wrote what he believed needed to be said, at times elaborating, at other times being concise. And you don't weigh the value of what someone says by the number of words they use, right? Gettysburg Address, classic example. But if you are into counting verses, keep in mind that Paul in Ephesians writes three verses to wives 
and nine verses to the husbands. All of that to say the Holy Spirit is an equal opportunity exhorter (laughs) of both husbands and wives. Considerations for husbands, number one, consider the way God has uniquely designed your wife. He's uniquely designed her. He says, live with your wife in an understanding way. That means understand how God has made her. Understand her life. Understand what has shaped her. Understand her fears and her insecurities. Understand her hopes and her dreams. Understand what makes her happy. Understand what makes her sad. Understand what she enjoys. We had great, great wisdom coming out of the men's breakfast uh, Saturday, two Saturdays ago, um, when one of our elderly saints said, you know, I, I know that there are times when my, my job, my role is to make the decision for the two of us, and so I always try to make the decision that I know my wife will enjoy. Wow, there's wisdom there. That's wisdom. Peter says she's the weaker vessel. Doesn't mean weaker intellectually. Doesn't mean a weaker character. He's talking about, generally speaking, women possess less physical strength. And so Christian husbands are to protect and sacrifice, care for, watch out for their their wives' well-being. Second consideration, consider her need to be honored by you. She needs to be honored by you, publicly and in private. Showing honor to the woman Showing honor to your wife. You honor her in public in the way you treat her, the way you talk about her. You honor her in private. You remember her on special days. By the way, guys, Valentine's Day is just around the corner, in case you've forgotten. Uh, Consider her as co-heir of God's grace. He says, they are heirs with you of the grace of life. Consider her as your co-heir. The two of you stand on level ground at the foot of the cross as co-heirs of the riches of God's grace. And then lastly, consider how your conduct affects your prayers. Interesting little tag there at the end. So that your prayers may not be hindered. Apparently the prayers of the husband can be hindered, adversely affected, if he does not take his role as husband seriously. If he does not treat his wife the way Christ treats his bride. considerations for wives and for husbands. And then lastly, no elaboration, bringing it full circle, all of this is about the beauty of Christ and his gospel being made visible for others to see. That's what we're all about. Come, brings it back to your identity. People have been born again. It's about the beauty of Jesus and the gospel of Christ being made visible for others to see through your marriage. So did that help? Do you have a better understanding of how, all, how that piece of the puzzle fits into the bigger picture? I hope so. I'd like to pray for the marriages in our church. <clears throat> if you're sitting next to your wife or your husband, reach over and take their hand. Put your arm around him. For those, for those who are not married, would you just celebrate with me the marriages that are in this room, the wives and husbands. For those who have lost their wife or their husband to death, that we would 
be next to them in comfort, love, and encouragement. Father, thank you for not leaving us to speculate about such important things as this. Thank you for giving us understanding through your word. Thank you, Spirit of God, that you are our teacher. Thank you that you take the things given to you by the Father and the Son and you teach them to us. Thank you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for modeling for us what it means to submit, what it means to have authority, what it means to lead, what it means to serve, what it means to glorify the other, what it means to not grasp to our rights. Father, thank you for the marriages that are here today, the husbands and wives. Lord, we would confess to you that of all the areas of our lives, this one probably has caused us the most, at times, confusion, tension, frustration, but also the greatest delight, the greatest pleasures, the richest intimacy and friendship. And so I pray, Father, for husbands, that we can love our wives, in our weakness that we could love our wives, in our frailty and failures that we could love our wives, and that you would assist us in that. I pray for the wives. Thank you, Father. Thank you for the unique design. Thank you for making it what it is. Thank you for the, the women of our church who love their husbands and who desire who desire to follow Christ in the home. Lord, use our homes as models, places where people can see Jesus. We do love you today. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.